Mom on the Radio. <laughs> this is Noam Chomsky. You are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Glad to be with you. Bright lights and promises A pocket full of dreams That's what they paid me to be I am a hometown queen Honey, would you sing it just for me? Good afternoon. This is WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. You're tuned into the Living Writers Show, and my guest today is writer Eileen Pollock, author of the books The Rabbi in the Attic and Other Stories, Paradise, New York, which is a novel, Woman Walking Ahead in Search of Catherine Weldon and Sitting Bull, which is a nonfiction book, and Whisper, Whisper Jesse, a children's book. Also author of numerous stories that have appeared in literary journals and several anthologies. Her nonfiction has appeared in many journals and major newspapers. She's received prizes, fellowships, and awards, including an NEA fellowship, two pushcart prizes, and an honorable mention in um, Best American Short Stories. A professor of creative writing here at the University of Michigan. She teaches both fiction writing and nonfiction writing. Welcome. It's great to have you. Lovely to be here. <laughs> Thrilled to be glad you came out in this snowy, snowy day. <laughs> <laughs> feels like Thanksgiving. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, feels like Christmas. <laughs> it's sort of we're dreaming of a white Thanksgiving. Well, as is our usual shtick, I'd love it if we could start out with some of your work. If you'd read from your new manuscript, which is called In the Mouth, um, from the story. Um, I believe it's the second story or third story in the collection. Right. It's a novella. It's called The Briss. Uh, a bris is a circumcision a ceremony. Most. Jewish men uh, undergo it actually when they're babies, eight days old, but this particular character uh, finds out his father wants to undergo one as he's dying. He's uh, in his 70s, and this just uh, picks up right in the middle as the uh, father is talking. The cemetery is only for Orthodox Jews. Marcus's father's hand drifted to his groin, which he clutched as if it pained him, and that is something I am not. Not only am I not an Orthodox Jew, I am not a Jew of any kind. Marcus hadn't been aware that he'd been holding his breath until he let it out. Obviously, his father meant that he hadn't been a good enough Jew, a good enough human being. Pop, he said, if you haven't been a good enough Jew, no one ever has. As evidence, Marcus recited his father's acts of charity, his quiet beneficence to the poor, his selfless attentions to Marcus's mother and her parents who had shriveled at her death, and the litany of considerations, favors, and loans he had extended to the guests, employees, and hangers-on at Lieberman's Hotel. His father lifted a puffy hand and chopped off the recitation. I wasn't born a Jew, and I never converted. Marcus rubbed his eyes. He had been up late the night before de deciding whether to propose to his girlfriend, Vicky, despite her desire to have a child, something Marcus was loath to promise, given that he already had raised a daughter and paid for her education and was fervently looking forward to being able to retire and enjoy the many pleasures Manhattan had to offer, not to mention that the prospect of getting up in the middle of the night with a crying infant exhausted him to tears. His flight from LaGuardia had been scheduled to leave at 6, 
which meant he needed to arrive by five to give the government time to make sure he wasn't a terrorist. On the plane, he couldn't sleep since the harried young man beside him couldn't control his son. The boy kept vaulting Marcus's knees and bounding down the aisle, colliding with the hostesses. Marcus took this as a sign that he was too old to have a child. Not that Vicky had made having a child a prerequisite to getting married, but how could Marcus live with the knowledge that he had deprived the woman he loved of what she wanted most? It was such a little thing, his father wept, but I couldn't face the prospect of anyone coming near me down there with a knife. The force of his father's revelation finally set in. Marcus's vision went red, then green, then black. As short and solid as he was, he swayed like a beachfront high-rise in a hurricane. He sat heavily on the bed and tucked his head between his legs. This isn't making sense, Pop. All these years, and what? You've only been pretending to be a Jew? (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you. So your first collection of stories, The Rabbi in the Attic and Other Stories, and your first novel, or Paradise, New York, um, as well as many of your other stories, including many in this collection, um, circle around Jewish lives and Jewish themes. And I was when I was doing some searches through... Um, stuff on the web, reviews, etc., I came across a syllabus from Brown University where um, your story collection, The Rabbi in the Attic and Other Stories, was listed on the syllabus Mm -hmm. of a course in um, Jewish Lit and Culture. And I'm wondering whether you consider your work Jewish Lit, and if so, what that means, or if you, um, and kind of how that category functions in in your thinking about your work and... Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think any writer particularly wants to be categorized in any um, pigeonhole that's less than sort of the whole of All literature. Of lit, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and on the other hand, many of us can't deny that we, you know, see the world through a particular lens. And um, to say that someone who grew up in the Borscht Belt, <laughs> you know. Now the Borscht um, Belt is a part of the Catskills in New York? Uh, right, uh, the very Jewish resort part of the Catskill Mountains. Uh, to say that someone who grew up in a nominally Orthodox household in a heavily ethnic Jewish resort area um, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s wouldn't come out seeking the world uh, through a Jewish lens, but, you know, and, and hearing the world with Jewish inflections. <laughs> Uh, would be, you know, just ridiculous to deny that. Uh, so it is it is a lens through which this, I see the world. I like to think I look at a larger world than just Jewish people or what it means to be Jewish, that that's a particular way of thinking about, well, you know, who are we and what are we doing on this little planet spinning around and, and how do we cope with the idea that we don't seem very important? You know, is, is there something else out there or not? Um, is there any guiding moral force behind our actions or not. So it's, it's a particular way to look at these larger questions. Um, but also I found that it's just much easier for me um, to write Jewish characters as main characters, at least. Uh, they seem more true. I know how how at least some <laughs> Jews think. You know, I'm, I, I do do Christians, too. <laughs> I don't know if I have any Buddhists. Or <laughs> but... Um, you know they're usually not the main characters. It's it's le- much less of a stretch for me to do men. <laughs> much, and much less of a stretch for me to do men than it is than to, is to do, do non Jewish characters. characters. <laughs> Interesting. 
So what sort of lineage do you put yourself in? You were trained um, at the um, Writers' Workshop in Iowa. Right. You got your MFA there. Um, did you also study creative writing when you were an undergraduate at Yale, or were you in science? I, is it science you were doing? Yeah, I was, um, I was actually a physics major while I was at Yale, but I did, toward the very end, start taking creative writing. Um, I studied with John Hersey, you know, who's just a lovely, lovely human being mm-hmm. and an Many inspiration. people will know of him because he's the author of um, Hiroshima. Right. He wrote fiction, too. You know, I think he's best remembered for his nonfiction, but he won a Pulitzer Prize with his first novel. So, I mean, certainly he wrote fiction as well. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm in a strange lineage because I was deeply affected by people who were my actual teachers. So John Hersey, who was about as wasp as they came, I mean, sort of in the, all the best connotations of, of that, um, that term, his parents were missionaries in China, you know, but he had a real vision of what fiction could be, what literature could be, and it dealt with these large issues. Um, and James Allen McPherson, who's African-American, who teaches at Iowa, certainly is huge influence on me. Um, but then the people they had me read <laughs> are, are the other part of the lineage, and they were smart enough to give me Grace Paley and Leonard Michaels and Isaac Babel and Bernard Malamud and Saul Bellow and Philip Roth uh, and Laurie Siegel to read, uh, and and for that I'm ever grateful. So, you know, it is a, it's, a, it's a mixed lineage. And, and one thing Jim McPherson taught me is, is writers have to be smart in whom they steal from <laughs> and that the thefts are less no, rarely noticed if you don't steal from the obvious sources. So McPherson stole from Isaac Babel, you know, and here was a black man stealing from a Russian Jew but, of course, if you feel like you're living in the enemy camp, you know, Babel was this Jew who joined the Cossacks. And McPherson is a black man who lived among whites. He went from Jim Crow South to Harvard as one of his first – he was one of the first affirmative action um, law students in the 60s. And so he stole that. And, and I stole from Jim, you know, but it's it's the same thing. Is, is if you're looking for a larger v- vision, uh, how do you be both – black and an American, which is what Jim stole from Ralph Ellison, which was a more obvious sort of theft, you know, that if I steal that from Jim and I'm writing about what does it mean to be a woman and a Jew, but also an American, um, you know, people aren't going to notice that as much. <laughs> no, no, where, where this, so when you say stealing, are you are you meaning stylistically or um, or thematically? thematically? Yeah. You know, um, stylistically, I stole from the obvious sources. Grace Paley, uh, primarily, the first time I, you know, John Hersey gave me one of Grace Paley's story, Goodbye and Good Luck, um, which is written in the voice of somebody's Jewish aunt. And Mm -hmm. that was the whole reason I started writing, because I thought until then that you had to um, sound like Shakespeare (laughs) or Hemingway or Bronte. You know, I, I didn't really... Um, get much guidance in my reading when I was younger, and so I didn't. I had never read contemporary literature before I got to Hersey's class, and when he gave me Grace Paley, and I thought, oh my God, you can sound like my relatives. <laughs> you know, a character could sound like that. He gave me Leonard Michaels' um, a story called Murderers, which is heavily inflected in a, in a Jewish idiom, and I thought, hey, I can do this. Um, Bellow Roth. 
so for style, you know, for voice, I looked to the more obvious sources, but for vision, you can steal from anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I, I think I'm more indebted to my actual teachers for vision and, and to a lesser extent, craft and um, for voice, you know, from people who sound something like the folks I, I was around you growing up. You wanted to write about right? and you were around growing up. I wonder, in, the, in thinking about... Um, there, there's sort of two sides to writing, uh, two very different sides to writing, and one of them is the creative act of making the stories, and then the other is the um, business act, if you will, of placing the stories. And I read in one of your interviews about um, Paradise, New York, that um, you shopped it around a lot before you found the publisher, mm-hmm. and um, you said that in in some cases you thought editors pu- passed on it because they thought that Jewish themes or Jews, I think actually you said Jews were passe. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering what you think about the current literary scene and what's in vogue. And as you're thinking about placing In the Mouth, is do you have a publisher yet for In the Mouth, this collection of novellas and stories? Or? Well, you're kind of getting a scoop. Oh, fantastic. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's not a done deal, so I can't actually give you particulars. But let's just say there's there's a, deal, a little deal bubbling along. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> That's wonderful news. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that, you know, blows that question out of the water, but maybe the process for getting to where you are mm-hmm. now with this, um, when you get a book together, you have a collection of stories, mm-hmm. which is a little different from the novel. You write stories and you publish them in right, um, journal. journals, and then you get to a point where you want to put it together as a book. Do you think about what's in vogue and how you're going to go about placing it? Mm-hmm. Does what's in vogue determine where where, where and whether one can find a home for a book? Well, even this story collection, you know, it's been a long slog. Um, I shouldn't say it, but it, it's true. And I think people don't talk about what a slog it often is because it's, they feel that it's embarrassing. And so younger writers think that it's just going to be this bed of roses or people don't are not aware of what's happened in the publishing world these days. Um there are a lot of pressures. People are always trying to suss out what's in vogue, what group is in vogue now, or what kind of literature, or what's it like that just sold. But also there's the problem that um, middle-aged writers <laughs> who haven't had a bestseller yet are actually put in a category that no commercial publisher really wants to touch. Is Which that is because um, they can't sell the person? Uh, they it, think. Is, I, I mean, mean is it's that just what a marketing is that what decision. It's the selling the person versus selling the work? They, I think that they're afraid to judge a manuscript on its own terms. So they're mm-hmm. just looking at past sales history, mm-hmm. which is odd because, I mean, you look at somebody like John Irving who had five books that – didn't really do very well before he wrote The World According to Garp, which was one of the blockbusters of the century. He, you know, in today's market, he never would have found a publisher for Garp because no one would have read the book and said, wow, this is a great book. Let's publish it. I bet we can, you know, make people want to read it. They'll they'll pass pass it on to their friends. They would have just said his first five books were not bestsellers, down with John Irving. And, um, the difference is that today there are smaller presses that are wisely picking up mm. the folks that New York publishers aren't willing to take a chance on anymore. But it's a, it's a really insidious state of affairs. Um, oddly enough, what Paradise New York was about or is about is ethnicity, treating ethnicity as some kind of gimmick or marketing ploy or something that could go in and out of vogue 
the whole identity politics um, situation. And one of the reasons I think the book was so hard to place is if publishers were going to publish it, they wanted it to be to appeal to a crowd that was beginning to be nostalgic for the Borscht Belt, which didn't exist anymore. And the book actually predicted this nostalgia would come one day and how bizarre it was to be nostalgic for something that no one that people thought of as vulgar and tasteless and, you know, worthless while it was there. And how could an ethnicity go in and out of vogue? And, you know, what was nostalgia? If if your religious or ethnic identity was based on nostalgia and marketing <laughs> in a sense that without it you didn't really know who you were in the sense that you couldn't market yourself, you didn't have an identity. What was it? Well people read this book and they're like, wait, so it's about nostalgia, but it's not nostalgic. And confused the heck out of <laughs> So it actually was picked up by a university press that was publishing a line of books about the Catskills. And several of the people who'd been published there said, you, you have to look to the editor. You have to look at this novel because it's, it's really about something, you know, right. that you should And, and the, that editor got it, and it fit in with these other books. Literature but, as sociology. Right. And, in fact, the professor at Brown who teaches it is a sociologist who grew up in the Catskills who now writes sociology about the Catskills. So, you know, you, you live long enough... <laughs> <laughs> and somehow, maybe you know you find your niche, but um, but it it's harder it's harder than you think to hang on that long. Well, we're going to take a short break on that note, and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Eileen Pollock. We'll be right back. <laughs> We're back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM 88.3 in Ann Arbor. My guest today is writer Eileen Pollock. We're talking about her work and the publishing world. And um, I wonder if you'd read a little bit more from us. You write not only fiction, but also nonfiction. And um, recently have published in a journal called The Fourth Genre, a piece called The Jewish Shah. I wonder if you'll read, read the beginning of that for us. Sure, I'd be happy to. The Shah of Iran is Jewish, my father would remind us whenever the paper ran a story about Iran, which was often in those days, the 60s and early 70s. One issue of Life magazine showed a magnificent red silk tent supporting a chandelier over a resplendent array of emperors and ambassadors dining in the desert at the Shah's celebration of 2,500 years of Persian history and 30 years of his own Pahlavi regime. 
Just don't tell anyone, my father warned us. If the Shah knew we knew his secret, he would send his police to bump us off. I love to hear that story. As far as I could tell, it was the only romantic part of my father's life. He had served in India in World War II. His best friend, Sidney Pallavi, another Jewish dentist from New York, used to joke that he and my father would slip over the border to Iran and visit the Shah, who happened to be his cousin. As Sidney told the tale, four of his uncle's sons had fled Russia in their teens to avoid conscription by the Tsar. The fifth cousin went east instead of west, making his way over the Caucasus Mountains to Persia. He tried to earn a living as a peddler, but eventually joined or was inducted into a troop of Cossacks. He hid his origins, became a Muslim, rose quickly through the ranks. There was a coup. He changed his name and declared himself the Shah. At the start of World War II, he threw in with Hitler, and his brothers in America washed their hands of their black sheep relative. But seeing as how Sydney and my father were in the neighborhood, they might as well stop by. Thank you. That's just a fantastic premise. <laughs> that, and you go on in the piece to um, sort of investigate and find out whether or not right. this is this story is true, um, which is is the the major thread throughout the piece is whether or not the Shah is Jewish. Right. Um, not the current Shah, but but the Shah. Uh, well, there's no show now. There's but no show now, but I mean, the, but the um, the father the, of the Shah, who most people think of as the Shah, Shah right? exactly. Okay, there we go. Um, and and that's sort of the main thread through the um, through the the piece. But wound around that thread and through a lot of the stories in your forthcoming book, In the Mouth, there are parent-child an examination of parent-child relationships and. Right. Transitions, so um, transitions from uh, being a child to being a parent, and from being a child to um, being without a parent. So mm-hmm. the transition um, into death. And I'm wondering, when you're thinking about writing fiction or nonfiction, um, whether these themes just sort of percolate there in the in your forefront in the forefront of your mind, or if it's sort of coincidental, or or why, for example. Um, parent-child relationships and not murder or vampires. Sorry. <laughs> 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 so why, why this chosen sort of um, area? Mm, um, I don't know much about murderers, <laughs> and vampires terrify me. I pass out at the mere thought of anybody biting anyone's neck. Seriously, and I have passed out in the theater in the middle of vampire movies. So <laughs> I, I, I have to write about, you know, not only what I know, but what I care what moves me emotionally um it's not planned it's what moves you emotionally moment to moment day to day um having my son you know turned out very surprisingly to be i mean this sounds like duh but (laughs) i never planned to be a mom i didn't think it was going to be a big part of my life if, if a part at all and so i was really knocked off my feet by what it turned out to be um I vowed I never would write sort of domestic fiction, and and then I had a kid, and I thought, oh, children. (laughs) Let's write about pregnancy. (laughs) And you've written a children's story. Um, Right, although that was a little bit off the 
my usual track. I was asked to write that, and okay. I, it's it's about AIDS, and that was something that was really deeply affecting me at the time. Friends were dying, friends, brothers, and you know, pe- people close to people I was close to, and um, someone someone asked me to write that. I wrote that, but um, you know, and and uh, as as the child of a father, particularly whose life just fascinates me. Um, you know, I, I just have kept coming back and back and back to writing about my father. I would probably write a lot about my mother, too, but <laughs> she's much more sensitive. <laughs> and my father's like, well, write, do whatever you need to do. Write whatever you need to write about me. That's fine. I, I, I don't mind. But my mother, if there's ever a mother in anything, <laughs> she gets upset and thinks it's her. So, you know, I sort of stay. It's, I don't, it's not that I find her less fascinating, <laughs> but... Um, well, that's interesting because um, you know, obviously, in in because you in your fiction, particularly because you're dealing with mother daughter relationships and mother child relationships, and um, does she worry about your fiction? Uh, do you uh, like when you write fiction? Do, mm-hmm. Does she think, oh, that must yes. be me too? Doesn't matter. So it doesn't it's matter. Fiction or or fiction. Or fiction. I, I have to say too that there was such a huge gap between my parents' generation and my generation. A gap. That I mean, obviously, it even has a name, but the generation gap was right. that generation. But it really is not there between me and my son or me and my students. Um, and so I look at these two people who raised me, whom I love so much, and I I don't understand so much about their lives. It's it's been lost. There was a huge sea change in American life between their childhood and young adulthood and my coming on the scene and my becoming an adolescent. And so it's a way of looking at a change in the country that I think has happened. A whole way of living vanished with men like my father, I think, who were just, it was assumed that they would find a way to support themselves, devote themselves to their family. They had a whole code of how a man behaved. And I think a lot of the things that were in that code or in that way of life um, no longer apply. And, and so it's a way of looking at the changes in the country um, from from my father's generation to our generation. And, and, and a lot of it has to do with gender, too, the difference between being a man, being a woman then, being a man, being a woman now. That's That strikes me as really fascinating to use this lens of family to look at... at um changing generations mm-hmm. and sort of the changing culture of the U.S., um, and particularly in light of the ways in which you look at family, because a lot of um, both the story that you just read from, the nonfiction piece, the, the Jewish Shah, and the story that you read, the novella that you read from at the beginning of the show, The Bris, and many of the stories in the collection, In the Mouth, they deal with secrets and the sort of discovery and unveiling of the secret. And mm-hmm. I believe it's the final story in In the Mouth, um, a story called um, Beached in Boca. Um, a daughter comes home to find her father is not only has been having an affair since her mother died, which she didn't know about, but is also dying and dying of AIDS, which she didn't know about. And um, there's another, um, there's several other stories that are secrets. Um, mm-hmm. the, in the story that you read from um, the Briss, the son doesn't realize that his father has been pretending to be <laughs> Jewish his entire life. Um, and in the story, the Jewish Shah, we have this um, possible scenario where the Shah is not Muslim, but is in fact ha- has escaped from Russia, um, come across the mountains, assumed right. the identity of um, a Muslim man in Persian, then assumed the role of 
ruler <laughs> of what he then names Iran. So, um, secrets, how... Um, I never noticed that before. <laughs> Honestly, I know it it sounds ridiculous to not notice something so big about your own work. Um, I know that I have a lot of fires in my work, and that's because where I grew up, fires were an important thing. People were burning down their hotels left and right, so I'm always for thinking insurance about, reasons. Yes, or, yeah, yes, I'm okay. always thinking about fires. But um, and there were several fires in town that were of suspicious origin, so I've noticed that, but not the secrets. Um, Maybe it's a device. It's a way to generate drama, but I think it's probably just what really interests me. I I, I think secrets are so mysterious, and obviously, you know, it's it's something that can give a real a sort of shimmery aura uh, t- to a story. Um, I don't know. I used to. I'm, I'm surprised at it because I used to when I was at Yale. I used to go to the rep, and they do all the Strindberg, and I would sit there and see people shouting at each other, and they were literally people in closets coming out of closets and they had syphilis and terrible family secrets and thinking who were these people what are all these secrets they had that's not my my family is so ordinary and nobody has any secrets Uh, I think growing up the ordinariness of my immediate family struck me Um, and so there's some sort of tension there I guess Um, maybe there really were secrets and I think probably any artist as a child feels oh I have a secret I'm just vastly talented and you don't know it and you know I'm going to grow up to be a writer or an artist of some sort so maybe it's that secret life of the child gets perpetuated in um, you know writing about mystery and secrets as you get older Um, but I also just think it makes a cool story to find out what are the stories that never get told in the official history books Um, who were the Nazi spies, who were, you know, the what what were the stories in your own hometown that you didn't really know? It looked so ordinary. 50s America looked so ordinary. Um, And yet it wasn't. It really wasn't. Well, and there's so much behind, um, you know, the generation you're speaking of, your Mm -hmm. parents' generation, where um, a lot of those men, including your father, were in World War II. Right. And um, they came home very changed Right, and they never talked. And about they never it. talked about post-traumatic stress right. disorder was not something we talked about till Vietnam. Right. So, this this um, public and even private public um, persona. Mm-hmm. And it's funny as you talk. You know, I think too the fact that my father was a dentist. You know, it's such a stereotypically boring occupation, right? And the person wears a mask and wears this white uniform, uh, and and they're. And then as you grow up, you realize that your boring father, who was just a dentist, there was something else behind the mask and behind the uh, that white shirt uh, that maybe you're only just starting to get at as you get older. And one of the things you talk about in, in this nonfiction piece, The Jewish Shah, is that discovery of, of what this life that your father had that you didn't know about right. as you were doing the research for the piece. And, of course, the other daughter who didn't know her father at all. At all. Yeah. Her, your father's friend. We're going to take a short break. It's the top of the hour. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This is The Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Eileen Pollock. We'll be right back. Dress 
show on WCBN. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Eileen Pollock. We've been talking about secrets. <laughs> now let's talk about truth. Okay. <laughs> we'll move straight on into that. Sometimes you, you started out as a journalist. When mm-hmm. you graduated from college, um, you left physics behind and went to work in uh, New Hampshire right. for the, was it the current? The no, Concord Monitor. The Concord Monitor. Okay. And um, when you did that, you wanted to write a column, and you've, I've heard you tell this story in a class, that um, you wanted to write a column, and they didn't really think that a 22-year-old had anything to write a column about, so you became a middle-aged woman and wrote a column, a nonfiction column, mind you. Um, and sometimes you write now, um, you continue to write in nonfiction, and you also write in fiction. And I'm wondering how you think about um, truth and finding truth and conveying that, either through um, fiction or through nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I should say that I, I pretended I was an, a middle-aged woman. To right. Write. <laughs> you didn't really become a, a middle-aged woman. <laughs> um, I, you know, when I write nonfiction, I really think, as simplistic as this sounds, that what you know to be true, you say, and what you don't know to be true, you either don't say or you say, I'm not sure of or I'm imagining this, and that for all that there are plenty of, you know, artistic arguments about nothing can really be nonfiction because once you select the detail, you know, you're shaping the truth. Yeah, that's all true. But we also know when we're lying and making things up or not checking our sources and, and sort of fudging things. And when you're a journalist, you really can't get away with that. You would get fired. So that early training, also Hersey was really adamant about keeping the lines clear, um, not necessarily between genres, but what's true and what's not true, um, whichever genre you're writing. So even when I'm writing fiction, I'm one of those people who if I say the Charles River was frozen over in January of a certain year, I have to go check that it was really cold enough in, in January, January of that year that the Charles River, even though what's happening in that scene never happened, if there's a verifiable fact... And I make it sound as if I'm not playing, you know, we're not in some science fiction territory. I need to check. Um, so I wouldn't change place name. You know, if, if, if I make up a town name, I'll do it, you know, whatever I want in that town. But if I use a real town or city, I make sure I get the street addresses right and um, obsessively, which is much easier with the Internet than it used to be because finding out what the temperature was in January of a certain year in the old days could take you a whole day, and if not longer. And now, you know, you can get it in five seconds. So it's much easier to be obsessive now. Um, <laughs> you know, and then, of course, there are philosophical truths that you try to get at with your fiction, thematic truths. But um, that's that's different, you know, those you just hope people agree with or find your take on things interesting. It's, it's not as if there are absolute truths for those. Well, and I guess those philosophical truths are are 
interesting to me um, in terms of your choices, when and why you choose to write material as fiction or nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Why, for example, write the Jewish Shaw as a nonfiction piece versus a fiction piece, or why write? Um, you have a nonfiction book called "Women Walking Ahead in Search of Catherine Weldon in Sitting Bull." Why write? And I, I've heard you talk a little bit about the research for that book in particular. Mm-hmm. You had a hard time finding what you thought you might find, right. and so the book you came up with is very different from the book you thought you might write. Um, what makes you decide to write something as fiction or write something as nonfiction? Well, I think mostly you do nonfiction with material whose interest comes from the fact that it really happened. You know, so if I made up a white woman who lived with Sitting Bull. You know, anybody can do that. But the fact that there actually was this white woman who lived with Sinning Bolt um, is remarkable. I could make up that the Shah of Iran was Jewish, but who would care? Everybody would say, oh, that's ridiculous. But if I could really prove to you that the Shah of Iran was Jewish, I mean, the value of that comes from it being true. So that that's often how I make my choice. I mean, sometimes it's to protect someone, you know. So if, if someone would be harmed by writing something as nonfiction, I'll write it as fiction and try to cover my tracks and hide identities and things. But um, the thing with the book about Catherine Weldon and Sitting Bull is that she had been lied about so much in her lifetime. People wrote anything and everything that, you know, she was Sitting Bull's white squaw and carrying his love child, and she started the last Indian uprising. Sounds like a soap opera. You know, and and publishers in New York really would have jumped at the book if I had done it as a novel. But I felt so much had been made up about this poor woman in her lifetime. What was interesting to me was who was she really? Why did she really do these things? What was the truth? Why did people lie about her? And if I was going to go to, I couldn't write the book at all without knowing who she really was. And if I was going to do all the work to find that out, whereas no one had succeeded before in finding out anything about this woman, why would I want to just clouded in lies and and make believe that the value to me would be saying no those were the lies and this is who she really was and what really happened between her and sitting bull but again it was a case where then publishers in new york were like well this is too complicated and she didn't really have his love child and <laughs> he did propose marriage but um but there was no affair and i wasn't about to make up a, a sordid affair between sitting bull and this white woman, you know, just, just to, to sell, sell the book. Uh, so it came out with the university press and sold a lot less. Than does that say something about what marketers have in their head in New York? Or do you, they, I'm getting, because that strikes me as terribly depressing about the state <laughs> of people in the U.S. If they, if, if it's got to be sort of the soap opera version to be something I'd want to read. Well, I, I, I think it also got, a, I, I put in a few too many details. I mean, it's not always the fault of the New York publishers. You can become obsessed with your subject and then think every jot and tittle about, you know, your, your people uh, should be in the book. So it, it's it's a much slower read than it might have been. I, I could have winnowed it down a bit more. But but I do think that um, editors, many editors, have a fairly narrow idea of what the public wants. And I think they're not fair to the public. I think that people really are interested in all sorts of different things that um, the editors aren't giving them credit for, really. I, I hope so. <laughs> I, just, I hope so. Well... 
We can't um, end this interview without talking a little bit about teaching because you're such a dedicated teacher and such a wonderful teacher. And that you know, I, I divided the world earlier into writing the books and um, publishing the mm-hmm. books, but now I'd like to divide it further and say teaching the writing because um, you've made such a huge difference in in people's lives, mine included, in the ways in which you teach and share what you know. And you speak very highly of your teachers. You spoke earlier in this interview about John Hersey and Jim McPherson mm-hmm. and. Um, I wonder how you think about um, teaching and, and if it's something that um, you enjoy as much as those of us who study with you enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's not what I set out to do. Um, but then, sort of like motherhood, <laughs> I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. And I think on the days when the writing is hard or the selling the writing is hard. It's wonderful to be able to feel as if I'm being useful to other people, um, that there's somewhere to go and people who want me to be there. But also, you know, I come from a a performing sort of culture. You know, the Borscht Belt was all about stand-up comics, you know, and secretly. <laughs> that's what I always you wanted really to, want be. to be. really want to be a stand-up comic. <laughs> but, you know, and, and people put on performances, but I can't sing a note, and no one ever cast me in any play. And, you know, so apart from the, the few times a year where I get to read my work in public, um, my stage <laughs> is the classroom. So there's this need to perform and... Um, it's it's very gratifying, but you know the students are great. I love working with you guys, um, especially here. It's at such a high level, and I just feel like I'm helping people who are real writers go on to do real writing, and and uh, that that feels really good. There's a, a lot of controversy. It's kind of a tired controversy, so I hate to even kind of go there. But I but I'm wondering if we can find something interesting in the controversy. <laughs> There's this. This um, criticism of the cranking out of writers and, you know, mm-hmm. um, can you teach writing? Can writing be taught? And my experience in your classes is that there are particular things that you teach um, that are things that that I would never stumble upon on my own. For example, structure and, and ways of hearing and, th- and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. But I, I'm wondering how you think about that uh, notion that writers are just writers and uh, oh yeah uh, everybody i mean you know musicians take lessons and artists go to studios and art schools there's there's a lot of craft a person has to learn and and that's what gets conveyed the other part about cranking out writers i mean as if there could be too many writers and readers in the world you know i mean we should crank out more than millions and millions and Not everybody has to do it to earn a living, but what a rich society if everybody is a reader, a writer, a musician, an artist. uh, You know, there's so many ways that that enriches a life. Um, I mean, if I cranked out everybody were little carbon copies of me, that would be a huge problem. But, you know, I really try not to do that. (laughs) I can't imagine I would ever turn you into me. You know, we're such different people. So just helping you write what you have to write, how could that be a, a bad thing? <laughs> when you spoke about your own teachers, Hersey and, mm-hmm. and McPherson in particular, and, and the ways in which um, they taught you different things to steal that were not sort of the right. obvious things. So what you've taken from Jim McPherson is very different from um, what he took from, um, who is the teacher? Ralph Ellison. From Ralph Ellison, for example, there's this um, difference. Well, you are reading soon. You're doing. Speaking of, of mm-hmm. your your stand up comedy, you're, <laughs> there's no stand up comedy. You're going to be reading from your work on December eighth, is it? Right. At the Residential College Auditorium at five p.m. Right. 
Wonderful, and that's part of the um, Zell Writers Series at the University of Michigan. Yes, I got that that all straight. Um, and what else is next? Um, are you 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 have placed in the mouth, and so that will hope for it. I mean, it's in the sort of final right. hand shaking <laughs> kinds of tense moments. Um, and you're of course have been writing since you finished this manuscript. Right. Um, but how do you think about a sort of what's next, or do you just think about well, there's tomorrow and there's more writing? I I have a project going. I get next term off. It's wonderful teaching at U of M. I get a sabbatical. Who gets paid to sit home and write? I'm so lucky. And I have a novel going about a woman who wanted to be a stand-up comic, but <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> well, wonderful. I look forward to it. Thanks. Well, thank you so much, Eileen, for joining me today. Um, my guest today has been Eileen Pollock. You've been listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and I hope you will join me next week when my guest will be Jonathan Franzen. Please stay tuned. I'd also like to thank... Um, Jason Voss for um, sitting in pinch hitting for the engineering gig today. Thanks very much, Jason. Um, So stay tuned. The Sports Report is next.